This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening and welcome everyone to the Human Nature series. My name is Sue. I'm a creative producer at the Australian Museum. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present, as well as their continuing culture and contribution to the life of this city and region. The Australian Museum, as you may have noticed, has just closed in the cause of Project Discover, our transformative year-long renovation. We thank you for coming along with us and we thank the Anzac Memorial too for their assistance in the presentation of the final three sessions of this landmark lecture series. While the museum's important research work continues on site, our award-winning architects are creating a 57.5 million renovation, which will significantly expand the AM's public floor space and deliver a better experience for visitors, including a major new touring exhibition hall, new flexible education spaces, an expanded grand hall, and more public amenities. So stay tuned for our reopening in 2020 when this brand new technologically advanced museum will open. And following that, um, we'll have the Tutankhamun exhibition in 21. So in the meantime, of course, we're delighted to continue our collaboration with our five major university parties, partners, bringing, who are so much fun, it's like parties, <laughs> bringing leading academic scholars in the environmental humanities from around Australia and the world to our audiences. And tonight we're excited to welcome our dynamic duo from Western Sydney University, Catherine Gibson, economic geographer of international renown and prof professorial research fellow in the Institute for Culture and Society, and returning to the, to the stage for the Australian Museum, anthropologist and filmmaker, Associate Professor Juan Francisco Salazar of the School of Humanities and Communi Communication Arts. To introduce tonight's thought-provoking session, I'd like to call on Dr. Estrida Nimanis, who is Senior Lecturer in Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney and co-organiser of this series of talks. Please join me in welcoming Estrida. Uh, thank you so much, Sue, and it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce to you Catherine and Juan on behalf of the organizing committee. So um, as Sue just mentioned, Catherine Gibson is a professorial research fellow in the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University, an economic geographer with an international reputation for innovative research on economic transformation. She has more than 30 years of experience working with communities to build resilient economies. I remember reading your work when I was an undergrad. <laughs> um, um, I was an old undergrad. Okay, as J.K. Gibson Graham, uh, the collective authorial presence she shares with the late Julie Graham, professor of geography at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her books include The End of Capitalism as We Knew It, A Feminist Critique of Political Economy from 1996, a post-capitalist politics um, from 2006, and Professor Gibson's most recent books are Take Back the Economy, an Ethical Guide for Transforming Our Communities, co-authored with Jenny Cameron and Stephen Healy, as well as Making Other Worlds Possible, Performing Diverse Economies, co-edited with Gerda Rolvink and Kevin St. Martin from 2015, as well as Manifesto for Living in the Anthropocene, co-edited with the wonderful and late Deborah Bird Rose and Ruth Fincher from 2015. And Juan, my wonderful colleague, uh, Juan Francisco Salazar, is an associate professor in the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western Sydney, where he's currently research director of the Institute for Culture and Society. An anthropologist and filmmaker, his uh, academic and creative works are concerned with a couple dynamics of social environmental change and uh, Juan has worked with a range of communities in Central Australia, Cambodia, Chile, Colombia, Vanuatu, and the Antarctica. And his latest film, which we get to see parts of tonight, is The Bamboo Bridge from 2019 in collaboration with Catherine Gibson. This follows his award-winning documentary, Nightfall on Gaia from 2015, which explores human environmental relations in times of abrupt change. Juan is also leading the Australian Research Council Linkage Project, Antarctic Cities and the Global Commons, Rethinking Gateways, and his most recent publication is the co-edited volume, 
Anthropology and Futures, Researching, Emerging, and Uncertain Worlds. Thank you so much. We're so delighted to have you, and now I'm very happy to turn the stage over to you. Well, thank you so much, Estrida and Sue, for this very warm welcome, and it's a wonderful occasion to be sharing the podium with Juan and our film. So the three of us are going to be presenting tonight. Um, we'd like to dedicate our lecture or this talk to our inspiring colleague and my very great friend, the late Deborah Bird-Rose, who died at the end of 2018. Um, Deb was one of the earlier speakers in this series, and she was a guiding light of the field of human environmental humanities. And her exquisite writing uh, will continue to move us and inspire reflection and action for decades to come. It was thinking with her that helped J.K. Gibson Graham, my joint authorial presence, to think creatively about the more than human community um, that we exist in in this world. So, the Bamboo Bridge. The Bamboo Bridge that we'll introduce you to tonight has some lessons for us about living differently with each other and with nature. But in order to receive its teaching, we might need to shift into an unfamiliar mode of thinking, one that calls forth speculation, also uncertainty, perhaps awe. My task is to set the scene, to lead the way towards taking that first step into uncertainty and onto a bamboo bridge that undulates underfoot, that squeaks and sighs. At first you might be alarmed. It feels flimsy. It's like being on the moving footway at Luna Park. And under you is the mighty Mekong River, one of the world's longest rivers that supports the livelihoods of 70 million people. But soon you'll relax and feel the strength and resilience of connection with another living entity. we take that step into uncertainty? Because it's a step away from separation and destruction. The starting point for this talk is the hyper-separation of humans from nature that has occurred in industrialised societies over the past 200 years. In the detached man-made world of the economy, stupid, the environment is our ecological service provider. And the ground under our feet is seemingly solid, concrete even. But cracks have appeared. What we've been blinded to is that this separation is threatening the livelihood of all living systems. In little over two generations, humanity has been, become a planetary scale geological force. We now live in what has contentiously been named the Anthropocene. And if we want to be honest, and that seems to be the new mantra these days, everyone's saying, well, to be honest, have you noticed? The situation is grim. The great acceleration um, shows this. These graphs have been shown a few times in this lecture series. They're important, I think, because they show the exponential rise of indicators of economic development since the 1950s, over my lifetime. <laughs> and the next show the critical indicators of change in Earth systems. 
and you can see that very similar exponential growth curve. Together, they describe what's been called the great acceleration of economic growth and environmental degradation that has brought us to the devastating present. A present where school children are taking to the streets to bring older generations to their senses, particularly our democratically elected representatives, pleading with them to do something. While it seems that humans have lost the ability to be affected by the non-human world, our young have not. They care for the planet, for Earth others, and for human others who will be most affected by climate change. And they care for their own futures on this big blue and green speck in space. We all know that planetary and social systems are under stress, and there's an urgent need to gift, shift gear and usher in a more caring way of surviving together. But as long as economy and environment continue to divide and obscure our relations of sustenance, we're confronted with a seemingly inevitable landscape of conflict and tension. The research that I do with members of the Community Economies Research Network approaches this divide by what we call reading for difference. This means recognising and valuing the whole range of diverse economic practices that contribute to livelihoods. Not just the narrow set of practices of paid employment, market transactions and private enterprise that are the focus of capitalist economies and mainstream economics. These are the, the economic relations that are here and above the waterline in this iceberg. And down below are all the different kinds of economic practices that keep people alive. We seek a more experimental and ethically driven conception of economic dynamics and a less utilitarian view of economy, ecology, interdependence. In a project funded by the Australian Research Council, I've been researching practices of economic resilience in monsoon Asia, the vast region of the world to our north that experiences huge annual variations in rainfall, so this whole area that's highlighted in green. And where, in this region, more extreme weather events are being experienced than ever before. Here, societies for thousands of years have learnt to live with nature's rhythms and dramatic variations. In Vietnam's Mekong Delta, they call, they call it living with the flood. Along with scholars in the region, we've begun to document the rich language of terms for economic and ecological practices of mutual assistance and adaptive livelihood strategies in monsoon Asia. And some of the names of these practices are here, again, under the waterline. The kind of practices that have been often seen as non-credible by Western thinking or by modern, modernized, modernization thinking. And it was in the context of doing this research that the Bamboo Bridge came to my notice. And here I have Isaac Lyon to thank. Donna Haraway describes the Anthropocene as more a boundary event than an epoch, and she asks us to act in relation to it. She says, what comes after will not be like what came before. I think our job is to make the Anthropocene as short or thin as possible and to cultivate with each other in every way imaginable epochs to come that can replenish refuge. The bamboo bridge is an infrastructure that lives with the flood and draws on a diverse array of economic and ecological practices of interdependence. We invite you to listen to the lessons that Bamboo Bridge offers that might help us make the Anthropocene as short and thin as possible. Hello, everyone. It's lovely to see you all here. And thank you, Sue, uh, for reminding me that uh, two years ago I gave a talk um, in this space, well, in the museum, the night before going to Cambodia uh, to shoot the film. So it's nice to come full circle and bring the finished film uh, two years later. Um, and also, I think, Catherine, we should think that everyone that has paid a ticket tonight should come for free to the Antenna Film Festival to see the premiere of the film on the 22nd of October. So we'll need to work on that. So Catherine has just set the scene to introduce the third presenter, the Bamboo Bridge. And in the next 10 minutes or so, I'd like to take you behind the scenes, a little bit behind the filming, but uh, also behind the editing of the film, 
and talk about the intricacies of using film in research or film as research, also as a thought experiment, and practicing an art of consequences, to paraphrase the philosopher Isabel Stengers. So this is a map of the area where we traveled. We filmed the Bamboo Bridge during just one week, uh, to be precise, six days in May of 2017 in Kampong Chang City, which is the area that you have there in pink. And this was one month prior to the bridge being dismantled for the very first time, for the very last time by the then owner and master builder, Mr. Yang Un, who you saw in the previous clip, who had been, build, been building this bridge since 2004. What's important to convey in this short talk is that every dry season around November and since at least the 1960s, this 1.5 kilometer long bamboo bridge has been built across the Mekong River to connect the rural villages in the island of Kopen, which is here. That's the island in the middle of the river. To the bustling city of Kampong Chang, which is, I think, the third largest city in Cambodia. Every year, the bridge is built by local communities through different forms of cooperative labor that Catherine will explain in some detail in a minute and using bamboo materials that are specially harvested for this, but also recycled from the previous year. And then every year around June, the bridge is dismantled in the wake of the monsoonal rains and as the waters of the Mekong River rise. And then a ferry service comes into operation, operated by the same owner of the bridge, and parts of the bridge are stored and recycled for the following year. And in 2007, this bridge, as I said, was built for the very last time as a gigantic new government-funded concrete bridge was inaugurated. Coincidentally, the day after we returned to Sydney, uh, Cambodian Prime Minister Han Sen attended the first Belt and Road Forum in Beijing. You may have read recent reports following the election in Cambodia just over a year ago about how the country has been sliding from democracy to dictatorship as Hun Sen extends his 33 year in office. And Cambodia has been a staunch supporter of the One Belt, One Road initiative, a Chinese economic and strategic agenda by which the two ends of Eurasia, as well as Africa and Oceania are being more closely tied along two routes, one overland and one maritime, which you can see there in pink and blue. While supporters such as the government of Cambodia suggest that the initiative permits new infrastructure and economic aid to be provided to economies in development. Critics, including many in Australia and the US, claim that it facilitates Chinese economic and strategic domination of other countries along these routes. And we wanted to mention this because the building of the concrete bridge is part of a larger geopolitical um, context. So I was tempting to follow that narrative for a film. It has all the ingredients, um, you know, in, including conspiracy theory, but it wasn't the line that we chose to follow. It's not how Catherine and I work. So we ended up choosing a very different route, both in the writing before we went there, as also in the filming and the editing. And as Catherine was saying, we based a lot of the preliminary work on the work that Isaac uh, Line had been doing there for many years. So on the one hand, we wanted to film the film to engage with three generations of bridge builders who could share insights of this unique sustainable infrastructure and the diverse community economies and ecologies it sustained up until very recently, or that it was entangled with. On the other hand, we concentrated on Mr. Un, who, while he had a house in town, was partly living here with his family, with his wife, his daughter, and son-in-law. This is the toll collection point to and from the island. And Catherine will come back to this point, but we basically hang around there for hours on end, sometimes the whole day, just filming, observing, being part of that very dynamic moment where people cross back and forth. So I'll just show you now a little clip about Mr. Un explaining uh, about the intricacies of building that bridge. So here we have... Um, Mr. Un again. Make sure. 
So this is a long scene where he's drawing and explaining how he has conceived the bridge in his mind and he never learned how to do it. He just learned to do it by doing it. Sorry, I thought we were showing the whole film. Got distracted. So that's just a sneak preview of a longer scene uh, that goes, um, for some people say it goes for too long, but I think it goes for the right amount. It, I, we like slow cinema. Okay. So that's the scene that we just saw, and that was how it was uh, shot. Uh, that's Robert Nugent, uh, very good, I think one of the most outstanding uh, Australian um, film directors of our time. So Catherine was asking earlier if the river, the monsoon, the cycles of bamboo and the bridge all tell an urgent and ancient story, are we listening? And I think that's the take-home message like, for, for tonight or one of them. But we wanted to go a bit further and make the bamboo bridge a main protagonist. So how do we do that? How we did that and did we achieve? Remains to be seen and I guess everyone will have a different opinion. But this meant thinking about how to engage with the bridge in its vitality and vibrancy and its material politics. Or at least ask the question of how, in a representational medium such as cinema, is it possible at all to move into a speculative mode of storytelling to capture the vibrancy and agency of non-human actors such as the two bridges, not just the bamboo but also uh, the concrete one. So that's the same place. Uh, and that's the other scene that you saw of Mr. Un fixing. So part of his role is to take care of the infrastructure and do little fixes and caresses. I saw him caressing the bridge many times, which was really beautiful. And we got really sick after this boat trip. Um, it was so hot and, but, so during the filming with cinematographer Rob Nugent, but more especially during the long editing sessions with Rowena Crow, we tried a few tactics. First, to see how we might create a dramatic tension between the two bridges as the core cinematic element of the narrative and the dramatic structure of the film. But this was never going to be enough, so part of the challenge was also to capture the vibrancy of the matter of the bridge itself. And some of you have seen my previous film, Nightfall on Gaia, where I experimented with a mode of speculative fabulation, a kind of a hybrid between Donna Haraway and Jorge Luis Borges, uh, bringing science fiction and documentary into tension. So while the human experience of living with the bridge is important, we wanted to try to focus on that thing itself and became very, very relevant. So the Bamboo Bridge continues some of that focus on how as human-induced environmental change threatens multi-species livability, we need to, as Anna Singh and anthropologists and others have called, entangled histories, situated narratives and thick descriptions that offer urgent arts of living. So we're going to now show you another clip of going underneath the bridge. Oops. So we went on the boat that I mentioned, and this is some of the stories that we captured by just hanging, well, not hanging around, going around in the boat for, for a day. So that's the only way to cross from one side of the river to the other underneath the bamboo bridge. 
So this is an example of those entangled histories and how to, to move, there's a very different spatiality and temporality for crossing through the bridge, either above it or underneath it. Yeah, and that's the concrete bridge at the end, at the, in the horizon. So, so I was tempting to see how the two bridges reflect each other or refract each other, but uh, as Catherine was saying, we chose for a more diffractive reading of it, perhaps something that in the long run maybe could become um, something of a diffractive theory of editing, uh, but it's too early to, to say. Let me just go back to the PowerPoint. Uh, these are the bamboo harvesters that um, Catherine is going to introduce in a minute. And this is the scene where we interviewed Mr. Shrim, uh, which is another of the uh, bamboo ma uh, master builders, uh, Isaac Line, enjoying a refreshment. And Sopea Xao, who was a filmmaker and DJ, she goes by the name of DJing and is very well known uh, for playing Berlin Electronica in Bangkok, in Vietnam, and also in Phnom Penh, so part of the crew. And here we are, all of us, um, talking to Mr. Shrimp. <clears throat> so um, I've been drawn a little bit uh, to that co concept of diffraction that I was mentioning, and not to the physical phenomena of the waves, but also, but, but to the approach used by a number of feminist new materialist thinkers such as, but not only, Donna Haraway and Karen Barad as a tool for feminist research. And bear with me for a second while we bring in some social theory. In this case, reading insights through each of the bridges and attending to and responding to the details and specificities of relations of difference between the bridges was an important way to realize how these come to matter. And these were discussions that we had in the editing room. It was useful to test if we could avoid reinstalling a humanist and a masculinist sense of a disembodied subject and portray the bamboo bridge as a victim. So for Karen Barad, diffraction attends to the relational nature of difference, difference as a relation or rather as relatings. And in Spanish, the word relating is very linked to relato or storytelling. So relating and storytelling are very important notions that are linked. So we didn't want to portray the essence of the bamboo bridge and the essence of the concrete bridge, but, but how they are enact, enacted and the matter of possibilities for reconfiguring entanglements. And that's a quote from Barrett where she talks that agency is about responsibility, about the possibilities of mutual response, which is not to deny, but to attend to power imbalances, in this case, the two bridges as well, so agency is not something that we humans have or possess, or non-humans by that matter. It's an enactment. Catherine. Just speeding up a bit. Because yeah, you I, are. You're speeding yeah. up, I think, too much. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to say that the diffractive reading of the bamboo bridge and the concrete bridge is a narrative enactment that allows us to speak and to show the livelihoods that are brought together and sustained by these different infrastructures, but also potentially transformed and destroyed. So, as Juan has said, we, our film has tried to capture a sense of the Bamboo Bridge as an actor in a vibrant human economy that's embedded in complex and interdependent ecologies of climatic systems, water flow, vegetation growth, fish livelihoods and more. So we, we started to see the bridge as an important site of caring and commoning where habitats converge. And one way of trying to kind of unpick that, that, that convergence is through um, something that we've used many times in the work I've done with uh, colleagues in the Diverse Economies Research Network and Community Economies Research Network. It's this kind of inventory that really is another way of representing the iceberg that I showed you earlier. It's an inventory that helps us to read for economic difference, to start to differentiate the world and unpack the interrelated practices that contribute to our lives, uh, but to lives of people on Copan and surrounding areas. 
So here we have the kind of uh, um, economic practices that most economic theory focuses on in the top, top cells in that kind of grey-blue coloured. But here we have all the other kinds of what forms of labour and different kinds of payment or unpayment, forms of transaction, forms of enterprise, types of property and forms of finance that actually come together in our lives and help to uh, make ends meet. Uh, and in those different practices, we have different relationships with ecologies and environments. And, and bringing this kind of differentiation to the fore gives us something to work with when we start to think about how we might live differently, how we might rebalance the relationship between some of these economic practices, especially those that help us to enact a more ethical relationship with each other and with the, the world around us and the earth others that we are interdependent with and rely on. So when we think of that bridge, the bamboo bridge, at first glance, we might see it as a kind of private capitalist business uh, run by a family. Uh, it's a family business, a little bit more than a, a mainstream capitalist business. Um, and it's a family that profit, profits from its operations. Um, Mr. Un employs carpenters and repairers, and they receive wages from him. But he, in turn, feels an incredible obligation to keep his workers in employment. And in the kind of uh, usual analysis of Southeast Asia, he would be seen as a patron with clients. But that relationship we saw and we observed at the toll house was a lot more than a kind of one-way power structure. While the bridge is privately owned, it also operates in some senses as an open access public place where fishermen cast their nets and spend most of the day and tourists gather. That toll collection point is a convivial space where Mr. Oon's family members and many others hang out, pass the time, some of them work for in-kind payment, others just volunteer, collect tolls and hand them over. Importantly though, the bridge has evolved over time from being a cooperatively built and owned and operated enterprise, as we'll see um, from this next clip, which talks to the previous build, uh, bridge builders, who we were able to track down. <laughs> ตอนนั้นมีตั้งปีจะนอนครับเชียงมาปานบัวยืนยืนชบ้าบัวชบ้าปีปีปีหกเชียงเมียนนะปานมีเมียนไกลปีดักสักตามสายดาวเราตลอ
within a kind of dynamic community economy of ethically negotiated coexistence. These negotiations are what, um, in the work that I do with others, the language we use is as that of a community economy. And this language tries to capture um, this notion of ethical interdependence. Here, community refers not to locality or shared identity, but to an empty space of possibility wherein being in common is actively negotiated. And here, we've taken from the work of the French theorist Jean-Luc Nancy. So community is something that is continually being made and remade and unmade. Its boundaries are fluid. Its ethical commitments are continually being challenged and evolving. So the community economy signals the oikos or the habitat and the multiple caring practices that support life. So when what we learn from the bridge, the bamboo bridge, is that a community economy involves negotiated transactions both between humans and between humans and non-humans. And the nature of these negotiations can either work to provide or undermine well-being and survival. Building the bridge each year now provides cash income for a range of workers who otherwise make a living from fishing or farming. And even though much of the bamboo infrastructure is salvaged and reused, the build also creates a demand for new bamboo. And it turns out that actually harvesting bamboo en enhances the bamboo's survival, as this, um, this clip shows. เออสายนั่นมันได้ที่เราตัดตาบ้านตกตกตามไปอย่างเงี้ยเจ้าบ้าโต้ตุ้งหอยเธอบ้านอ้อตัดแท้ตรงไหนนะตามตัดไม้ก
All we can do, I think, is to listen to the bridge, to the bamboo, and hope that the young of Cambodia might hear the call. Bridges are infrastructures that connect. As material forms, they allow for the possibility of connection and exchange over space. Both the bamboo bridge and the concrete bridge are connecting two worlds, or more than two worlds, the rural village island worlds and the bustling city and the worlds in, in Kampong Chang City. Here you have the two, so that's the bamboo bridge uh, in the top one going from the city to the island, and this is where you get from the bamboo bridge to their uh, rural village. However, they also shape the nature of diverse livelihoods, the speed and direction of movement, its temporalities, and its vulnerability to break down in very different ways. As a technopolitics that seems far removed from formal political institutions, the concrete bridge imposes a rhythm of 24-7 connectivity of modern development, bringing electricity and roads, of course, access to hospitals, uh, by the uh, islanders, but oblivious to the rhythms of the river and the monsoon. As a material and semiotic device, the bamboo bridge is instead a world in its own that brings forms of life together. It moves, it breaks, it repairs, it groans and it howls, it smells beautifully, it changes color every time. It has a sensory affect, people fish from it, people marry on it, people swim next to it and through it, people are together on it and with it. Catherine was just saying how all we need to do is to listen to the bridge, to the bamboo, and actually we can do that. I'm going to play you a clip of the bamboo bridge singing the monsoon song, the monsoon song, which is a collaboration between the bridge and the Chilean composer Christian Schmidt that composed the music of the film using bamboo instruments. So we are basically recording the bamboo singing back to you after a storm which initiated the monsoonal rains coming through in middle of May, early May. So this is just a half an hour after a very big storm. off <laughs> but at least you could hear um, the bridge singing back so those are little moments in now I need the lights <laughs> little moments um, where we could move into a, a speculative mode uh, and invoke the vibrancy and um, agency of, of the bridge so in my previous film I went a little bit further in using speculative fabulation. Uh, and in this one, although I'm not using fabulation, it was as you, you could see from the clip, there's a subtle speculative mode of practice there. And I always like to carry uh, Ursula K. Lewin everywhere and every when I go. So I'd like to invite her um, here tonight. And in an, she's an American or US science fiction or speculative fiction writer. In an acceptance speech in 2014, she said loud and clear, hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices of writers, and I read filmmakers, who can see the alternatives to how we live now, can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine real grounds of, for hope. We'll need filmmakers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, realists, of a larger reality and writers as well. Yes. I know there's many writers in the room. So hopefully the Bamboo Bridge film can offer that glimpse to those alternatives to how we live now that Catherine so eloquently was talking about. Or as Adriana Paredes Pinta, a Mapuche Huilliche indigenous poet from Osorno in the south of Chile, once said, tenemos que reaprender a caminar el mundo como seres vivos. We have to relearn how to walk this world as living beings. 
and Arturo Escobar, a Colombian anthropologist, calls this a crisis of habitability, or how we inhabit together in this world. And as many have written, Western capitalist modes of habitation have eroded a systemic mode of inhabiting the world based on the radical interdependence of everything that exists. It is in many rural areas of that developing world, such as the Copain Island, where a different vision of living has been maintained and the end of the bamboo bridge perhaps is a powerful sign of an imminent destruction or change in a rich cultural, of a rich rural cultural heritage. We began by saying that we wanted to dedicate this presentation to Deborah Bird Rose, uh, but not only. We would like to also acknowledge the people of Copaen whose stories we have the responsibility to carry. And we would like also to pay our respects and gratitude to the collective of friends that made the Bamboo Bridge film possible in the spirit of those community economies that Catherine has been looking at and working with for so many years. Robert Nugent, who shot the film in such a wonderful way and captured these worlds on camera in only six days. The producers Claire Fletcher and Alejandra Canales from Matadora Films who have worked tirelessly for two years, secured funding from Screen Australia to complete the film, and have lifted the film to a new standard. Rowena Crow, the editor with whom we brought the film to life. Isaac Line, who did his PhD in the area, and without there would, would be no film without Isaac. He coordinated the film production. Too many people to mention. Thank you all for coming tonight. We hope you can join us on the 22nd of October in the Chauvelle Cinema for the full screening. I cannot tell you how it feels to break the film in little clips and just talk on them without watching the full film. And I'm going to leave you with one final clip to thank also the Bamboo Bridge for allowing us to tell its story and its lessons on resilience. Thank you so very much for coming tonight. So we have about 10 minutes for questions and I'll walk around with the mic. Thank you. Can I ask how deep the river is where the bridge crosses? How, how far down do the bamboo pylons have to go? The depth of the river? 40 meters in that part. Maybe I'll use my chair's prerogative to ask a question. So beautiful. Thank you so much, both of you, for both the talk and the, the film clips, which do leave us wanting more. Um, and I'm apologizing that my question's a little bit depressing. It's like the lesson of resilience from this bridge is that it's not being built anymore. Is that correct? Like, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, because it does leave me a little, at least, with a little sense of despair that this amazing experiment in community economies no longer exists. And so I wonder if you could say a bit more about the lessons to take away from that. Yeah, I think, um, yeah if we're going to be very literal, of course, it's not being built anymore. So that, that was the choice we could have made, to, to portray this bridge as a victim of modernisation. But I think, um, I don't, I think the, the lessons are perhaps more, as, as we're saying, more speculative about a different way of living an economy. 
it's not something we can transpose to Australia. We're not going to build a bamboo bridge across the Murray River, but or maybe we could. You know, who knows? But it's it's about it's about a way of living in a different mode, a different mode with rhythms, with temporality, and with reciprocity, and with multiple economic transactions that come together. So, it. It, I hope, inspires some imagination about a different world. It's not something, it's not a development agenda that we're trying to document here. This is a new pathway forward, a solution. Not at all. It's something, I hope, that can inspire thought um, and speculation about the possibility that there are other ways of living that have lasted for many, many years um, that are different than the way we live now. Now, if I get back into my development head agenda, well, yes, bamboo is now being looked at as a major um, building material, uh, a different kind of future for bamboo and integrated with other things. There's a whole building laboratory in Singapore that's getting into this as a new way, a new material for the future. So, you know, in some senses, we can take from this a lesson about different kinds of materials, using renewable materials um, in building. So. And I think we could think about more less direct lessons like that. But I kind of would like you not to... I guess we're trying to get people to be imaginative about a future. Don't listen to us, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, so, it's too easy to be depressed. <laughs> it's much harder to be hopeful. <laughs> but I do, I do think that your reading is an, an important one as well, because those lessons in resilience that have been shared by the builders and the bamboo bridge have changed. There's now, uh, the bridge has not been built again, but uh, someone bought the license uh, to build a pedestrian bridge. And I saw a picture a couple of weeks ago and it's almost underwater, so it was not built in the same way as this majestic bridge. So it's also um, looking at those, the lessons, the bridge might be rebuilt again, so it's not that it's gone forever, hopefully not, not gone forever. Thanks, that was really interesting. Um, and um, I somehow always think about Benedict Anderson when I, when I think about infrastructure and the way he's talking about uh, imagined communities, this big community of the nation state that is linked to modernization through the movement of people and narratives. And I'm wondering, um, because obviously this concrete bridge links to the modernization and geopolitics, I wonder what kind of, in a way, how does this community building around the uh, bamboo bridge, can, how can it expand in scale, I guess? And what, like, how do you imagine this kind of community building around the infrastructure of the bridge, can, how can it expand or how can it multiply? Well, um, I think one of the intentions, I suppose, of the, of the film is to represent a kind of other community and other kind of life, a rural life. Um, and I think that kind of revaluing of uh, a simpler life is happening, happening all over the world, actually. Um, yesterday we were very entertained by our visitors from Taiwan, some of whom are here, who are also involved in um, working in rural parts of Taiwan to revalue the, the values and lifestyle of a rural lifestyle. And I think that we know it's happening here in, in Australia, it's happening all over the world. So. And it's not in a romantic sense at all, but it's, um, it's challenging some of the ways in which we do agriculture, the way we live um, in, kind of in, in the kinds of sociality of the communities in which we live. So it seems to me that we're at a cusp where the, um, the promise of modernization, the promise that the concrete bridge has offered um, is, uh, you know, is, is very fraught. And there are many people that are turning away from that. So to what extent a film like this can reflect back to people another option um, that, that, that might say to young Cambodians, actually, yeah, going and working in the textile factory or the clothing factory in Kampong Cham for the few years while you'll be able to still see what you're doing before you get turfed out, um, out of that in, uh, industry into something else is one option. But another option would be to stay working with a rural lifestyle and perhaps resist 
some of the um, speculative urban development that's about to come, um, unbeknownst to the villagers, because of that concrete bridge. So how do we kind of expand, differentiate the world? This is exactly what we're trying to do, diffract and differentiate to make opportunities and other options more viable, more legitimate. And I think people are doing that all around the world. How do we join them together is, is kind of one of the challenges, and the film is one way of trying to do that through these kinds of conversations. And those kinds of conversations are also um, in the film through several of the characters. There's a scene where the two uh, bridge builders have a conversation with the monk. So they walk into the temple, they give the food to the monk, they pray, and then they talk about the consequences of the concrete bridge. So those tensions are in the village as well, and there's different views. So the film does not romanticize that view, but tries to uh, show those lessons that are changing uh, by the introduction of this big uh, monster that brings development and a lot of the villagers are very happy to have electricity, running water for the first time and especially access to the hospital in Kampong Chang without having to cross in the ferry at night during the monsoon. So those dilemmas and tensions the characters explore in the film, some of the characters. Hello everyone. So I come from a background, uh, an Indonesianist background. I, I don't necessarily know anything about Cambodia except that I can draw parallels between um, the bamboo and the use of a material, particularly in, in rural settings, but also in um, modern city settings you see in, throughout Asia that it's used as a scaffolding to, to create um, concrete buildings. Um, was there any exploration about, uh, there seemed like there was quite a lot of exploration about the materiality of bamboo and um, unfortunately from in Indonesia, from my experience, it is seen as a material that it, it reflects poverty because it is cheap, it is easy to grow, it is it has been used for such a long time as a traditional material and um, indeed it is very fit for purpose but because it is not seen as luxury, as modern, as um, you know, as something to aspire to, it, it is being rejected in those, in those very communities and we find that yeah, there's an embrace, embracing of concrete which is perhaps not fit for purpose, not fit for, for the environmental conditions, but is being more and more used. How do you see um, potentially a, a full circle happening? Like, to me, I see this bridge as a beautiful example of locally-led design innovation. That's what, how I see it from, from my perspective. However, um, you know, from, a, from the perspective of a village, perhaps, yes, they are excited that they've got a bamboo bridge, but but they don't see what is being lost until it's too late, perhaps. Thank you. Um, have you talked to Astrida before there? <laughs> <laughs> there is a moment, um, one day we went out of this um, village city uh, context to uh, another province, Hanche province, and maybe Isaac can give you more detail about this, where the Buddhist Social Development Agency is sponsoring or working on a new tourism development. Um, they call it the Hanche Resort, and it's, everything's constructed out of bamboo, look, uh, using local knowledge and reinventing or revaluing or re-engaging with the beauties of bamboo. So there was a moment there of light and they referred to the inspiration of the bamboo bridge and the use of bamboo in this way to create a whole eco-tourism resort completely out of bamboo. And they explain the use of the material and why bamboo is so much better than any other material for construction. You know, it's flexibility, it's durability, it's <clears throat> how you harvest it, how you recycle it. So, you know, if you're working with bamboo. So that was an example of a inspiring project re related to the bamboo bridge. Uh, so it's not just the aesthetics of the bridge, the heritage of the bridge that the local people really appreciate, but a lesson learned for changing, you know, the use of sustainable infrastructures from a bridge to, you know, some ecotourism. So we didn't see any housing um, developments from bamboo, but that's a, a, an inspiring story.
I mean, I think the other thing to say is that, you know, the romance with concrete is starting to end. <laughs> Soon after, in the year since the film was made, we saw the collapse of that huge expressway in, in, uh, in Tilly, and we saw the collapse of the dam in, in, uh, in Laos and so on. And, of course, the actual resource uses, the need for sand is, is far exceeding the possibility that we can even meet that demand and the energy that's involved in concrete. So, I mean, people are getting more and more aware of the fact that concrete is part of the great acceleration and it can't keep going and it's part of the problem. So, of course, in Asia, that's still seen as the, you know, as soon as you get some money, you build a concrete house. So where, how do these values change? One way is to revalue these other materials and if Western world keeps valuing, you know, the high rise, uh, made of concrete, then it's going to be hard for lots of people to desire a different kind of living. So again, we need as cultural thinkers and workers to be promoting desire for other kinds of practices and, and materials, I think, not just accepting, you know. <laughs> well, thank you so much both. I'm afraid we're out of time, uh, but you can come and chat afterwards for a few minutes if you like. And I, before I let you go though, um, and after sharing once again my heartfelt thanks, I would like to remind you all that you can uh. join us again here in this room on the 22nd of October for the next uh, talk in our Human Nature series featuring Professor Mark Carey of the University of Oregon, uh, exploring the culture and politics of ice and the fundamental role of glacial ice in global economics and politics within imaginative historical and colonial narratives. But um, let's give a round of applause once more to the inspiring talk by Catherine Inquan. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.